I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the global food crises and how they've changed and not changed over the years, we have with us Michelle Nunn, who is the CEO and president of Care USA. She's been so since 2015. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thanks so much. It's really, really good to be with you. Michelle, I want to get right to your latest report coming out of Care. It's, it's a new study. It's called Knowing Better, Responding Worse, How Mistakes from 2008 led to the food crisis of today. This was just released by CARE and reported that 112 million more people around the world were driven to hunger after 2020 compared to the previous major food crisis, 2008-2009. What does this say about the situation with world hunger? Well, a couple of things. I think one is that we need to do more as a global community to respond to this hunger crisis. And I think in this instance, we're seeing that sort of from a geopolitical perspective and from a leadership perspective, perhaps there's a lot of humanitarian crisis. We've just moved through a pandemic. We have the conflict in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. You know, I don't think you're seeing the headlines around this really unprecedented hunger crisis around the world. And so we, first of all, need to attend to it. We, second of all, need to make sure that we are making the requisite investment And that includes both emergency response to stave off hunger and even famine-like conditions in certain countries. And it also means that we need to invest in the infrastructure and the resiliency that will help to ensure that we don't have a similarly significant hunger crisis in the next couple of years. And I think that was the lesson from the report was, one, is that we did have a surge of investment and support. We need that now, and we haven't had as much of that. But the second thing, the the sort of cautionary lesson around the 2008 hunger crisis was that we did not invest enough in the resiliency and some of the longer term agricultural systems pieces that need to be in place in order to build a system that can withstand shocks and that supports people to move through what we know will be inevitable climate related. And we also can anticipate continued conflict related sort of triggers for hunger. The problems that have come up with this and that this report has raised are pretty startling. I mean, I just want to read one finding. This was that the report found the number of undernourished people decreased by 95 million after the 2008 response, and the number of undernourished people escalated by 60 million people between 2021 and 2022 following the pandemic. And I can only assume it's getting worse with what's going on in Ukraine and Russia pulling out of the Black Sea grain deal. So why is there no resilience and what can be done now to make sure that these folks who are, you know, are, are really suffering get some relief? Well, I think, you know, part of this is the larger trajectory that we're seeing a increase in poverty and that, you know, we've had, a, as you know, a big upward trend in our actually bringing people out of poverty over the decades. And over the last couple of years, we've seen a decline. I would say there's a confluence of events that are happening that are driving up those hunger numbers. And then a, I would say, a lack of response that is not solving the problem. So you have, again, uh, 
greater um, and escalating crisis and conflicts in many parts of the world. We're seeing, obviously, the, the crisis in Ukraine is having a lot of ripple impacts because they are such a big exporter of grain. And so you have escalating crisis, you have escalating climate issues. So we have more droughts, more floods. If you look at the Horn of Africa, unprecedented in, in our recorded history, five consecutive years of drought and the inability of yielding a real meaningful harvests for smallholder farmers there. And then, as I said, you have this post-COVID tail, inflationary forces, and a whole set of things that are driving prices up. All of those things not being responded to by the world at the threshold that's necessary. Even now, in the face of all of these challenges, you have Congress, the House just came out with a budget that had 30% cut in international development and humanitarian assistance. And so I think it is we need to do more at a time when more is required of us. And we also need to embrace a long-term strategy along with the direct emergency response. In your view, why has hunger gained less international attention and subsequent funding in recent years? We, we've seen not a lot of media coverage, for instance, and, and you know, a lot of times that translates to less funding and less awareness. Why do you think that is? I wish that I both knew and I wish that I had a remedy for it because I think that it is a dramatic problem of focus. And so, I mean, one, I think, dimension of it is that, again, geopolitically, the global leadership and the media is distracted by other crises like Ukraine, where you're you're simply not seeing the news about what's happening in Sudan, for example, where close to 60 percent of the population is in need of humanitarian assistance and hunger, same 80 percent in Yemen. And, you know, not having ongoing sort of coverage of Afghanistan. Some of these are hard to reach places. And so, again, media is not telling that story and it's not breaking through at the broader public constituency level or at the policymaker level. So I think those are part of the issues. I think that both the media and the world, in some sense, responds when there are rapid onset disasters. So for instance, when you have a hurricane, we see the visual images, the world responds. When you have a an issue that is longstanding or that is slow onset, um, and that is in places like the Horn of Africa or even in Yemen and Afghanistan, then I think you don't, you don't have that sort of capture that is important for people to, I think, focus attention. And then lastly, I think we do have to, to call out that the we're, we're just not paying attention to places that are are not in the geopolitical center of the universe like Sudan, but have huge ripple impacts and really regionally could create issues of broader global and national security that we need to be mindful of and that we need to address, again, primarily as a humanitarian for humanitarian reasons, but also because we have economic and national interests as well. Michelle, can you explain how food insecurity and acute hunger crises impact women and girls specifically? Yes. If you take hunger and food insecurity and you think about who is impacted most and first, it is women and girls. And it's not hard to imagine if you take it down to a level that we all could relate to. If you imagine a family that is trying to determine how to feed themselves and they may only have one meal a day or two meals a day, you can imagine that it's the mother that is going to stop eating and that is going to ensure that her kids are fed. You can imagine that when it comes to, for instance, 
a lack of water. Women are often the ones that are literally going to fetch the water. They're the ones that are making the six mile journey instead of the three mile journey. They are the ones in any natural disaster that are most impacted. Right now, there are 200,000 women that are pregnant in the Khartoum area. So think about living through a conflict in Sudan and then think about living through a conflict when you are pregnant. And so we did a report not long ago, CARE did, that said that we estimated that there were somewhere between, our estimate was 150 million, others have seen it at 80 million, but a significantly higher number of women and girls that are hungry than men. When we need to respond to the hunger crisis, we need to think about how are we ensuring that we have a gender lens around it? How are we ensuring that we are supporting women? Because when we support women, they're able to support their families and it has a a dramatic impact in terms of the overall resiliency for communities. Part of CARE's work, of course, is to promote women's economic justice. I guess the question I have is, is, if women across the globe had greater control over economic resources, do you think that would change the outlook of the hunger crisis? Yeah. I mean, look, there's so many things that are hopeful about what we could invest in. So we don't want to leave people with a sense of despair around the challenges because there are meaningful, again, interventions and solutions. So it's been estimated that if women had equal access, if those that are selling in the marketplace, if they had access to markets, if they had access to equal rights to land and to equipment and fertilizer and supplies, that the world could feed 150 million more people. Just think about that. You 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 know, you all we all know that if you look at McKinsey studies and a whole range of studies, that the more women are able to have equal access economically, the more you can see GDP rise. As it makes sense, if you are enabling 50% of your population to realize their uh, greatest potential and to contribute at their greatest potential, you're going to see growth and you're going to see a greater success for families and communities. What is the likelihood that we can develop a resilient food system to respond in the event of a future crisis? Is this, this seems like a really daunting set of projects considering all the statistics we've just cited. It is. And we do have the capacity. I mean, there's all sorts of modeling around. I mean, we can produce and really do produce enough in many ways to feed the world if it was more equitably distributed and if markets were working and if people had equal access. We know there's been lots of studies that famines are largely man-made versus just naturally made. And that's a they're a product when you have conflict and autocratic governments that preclude and uh, the capacity for food to be distributed But we do have the capacity to feed our populace, especially if you look at issues, for instance, around child nutrition. There are interventions right now that we could employ that would ensure that no child should die of malnutrition. And we still have millions of children that are dying of malnutrition. The good news is that we have the interventions and that we have the solutions. The bad news is that we're not investing sufficiently and that we also are not demonstrating the political will and making the requisite political choices that would enable us to, I think, realize those solutions as we go forward. And I do think we have to recognize that with the issues of climate that we are going to, we have to adjust and adapt for communities that are going to be most hard hit, frankly, most of whom 
Well, all of whom, you know, if you think about smallholder farmers living in West Africa or in the Horn of Africa, have not contributed to this climate crisis, but that are going to pay the the biggest price. And we have to support them to be able to have the resiliency that they need to withstand the droughts, the floods that are ahead. And that's everything from the utilization of, for instance, drought resistant seeds to the diversification of their incomes, to the investment of women as restorers of nurseries and, and trees. So there's a whole set of things that we need to do, but we're going to have to act at a greater threshold of investment and also of urgency. So can I ask you, what are some of the small scale examples of sustainable food systems that you think could be adopted globally to help solve some of these problems? Well, so CARE, for instance, has a program that we started an, a couple of years ago that's called Farmer Field and Business School. And it is a, a training and a support set of structures for women smallholder farmers that provides a kind of an extension service around what they need to do from an irrigation perspective within their various different contexts to more effectively have access to water that helps them know when is the best time to plant, what is the the right sort of technology, even in simple terms around spacing. For instance, I, I went to visit a farm in Kenya recently, and just the spacing of cabbages had increased their yield by 60 to 70 percent in terms of productivity. And then it's equal access to marketplace. It's support for them to have diversified diets for their families by, for instance, planting gardens. And for instance, instead of having just a reliance upon one form of crop or livestock, that they have a diversified set of structures that enable them to create some withstanding of the different weather forces that might be hitting them. And so all of those things, that's just one example of a a set of programs. And we reach over 9 million farmers, but our hope is to get to close to 25 million farmers over the next few years. And, And new technologies around, as I said, irrigation and capacity and access for water through major infrastructure projects as well. There's there's a range of things, and we're going to have to act holistically. It's not one silver bullet, but it is a integrated set of solutions that prioritize, you know, the feeding of the planet and ensuring that in 2023 that we don't have people, practically one out of every 11 people in the world right now that are going to bed hungry. So what do you think the biggest obstacle is in fighting this hunger crisis? I mean, ultimately political will and the pressure from a broader global constituency on the leaders of the world to take the action that is required to ensure that we are building a more resilient, healthy, sustainable, fair, and equitable food system. I want to ask you, looking ahead, what are the most important resources needed to end or to greatly lessen the worsening hunger crisis? From a care perspective, we would say a couple of things. One is that we should invest in women. We should invest in women smallholder farmers, and we should invest in them as agents of, of change within the food system at every level. I think, too, we have to think about what are those areas of adaptation that we have to equip, again, farmers around the world for climate. And some of that is technological, some of it's highly sophisticated, and some of it is only just ensuring that farmers have some of the basic tools that they need 
need, again, in the face of difficult climate change. And then I think we need, you know, some changes in the broader food system infrastructure for healthy, more locally grown, sustainable foods that also are not displacing markets and especially in countries that low income countries, removing some of the trade barriers that sometimes are creating inequities for those that are growing the food. If you look at who are the the most poor people in the world are largely smallholder farmers and people who are producing our food. So ensuring, I would say, equitable livelihoods for those who are actually driving the food system is in and of itself one of the areas that would be and is critical to, again, a more sustainable, a more healthy set of food systems. So there's a the whole set of things that you could point to. But I think the the idea is that we we kind of know what these opportunities for intervention and engagement and change are, but we need to broaden awareness, drive political change by mobilization and by demanding for our broader global leadership that we step into these solutions. Michelle Nunn, thank you very much for spending some time with us today on this critical set of issues. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 